Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah Peck, and this is the Startup Pregnant Podcast. Sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around what a huge process birth and pregnancy truly is. We are inviting life itself into our lives. And with life, we also invite the potential, well, no, the reality of death. Sometimes I feel like the bigger my heart expands with love for my children and my husband, the more scared I am of all that I will one day, someday, inevitably lose because it's all part of the process. There's new life. There's death. These are things that happen. Today, we get to go deep with a wise and inspiring woman. Christine McAllister is the founder of Life with Passion. It's a company that focuses on helping people leave their boring or unfulfilling nine to five jobs. And she helps people, high achievers, make six figures from what they really love doing. She's an entrepreneur, a business coach, and as of this year, a best-selling author. She has also overcome huge heartbreak. She started her company after she experienced a full-term stillbirth of her first daughter, Maeve. We talk about her pregnancy experience, her journey in becoming a mother, and how that inspired her to launch her company. Today, she is the proud mama to a rainbow baby, Fiora, and they live with their two rescue dogs near their Arabian horses in Louisville, Kentucky. We also geek out about her book, and she shares with us an overview of the seven key tools in her book, which we walk through, and they are so genius and so helpful. I am so grateful, as always, to get to host these conversations. So let's dig in. Welcome to the Startup Pregnant Podcast, where we talk to creative leaders about what it means to be an entrepreneur and a parent. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Before we jump into today's episode, I know that many of you know this year we have been running a nine-month mastermind for a small group of startup pregnant women. I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it and clue you in for how you can sign up for the next one if that's something you're interested in doing. We have a small group of women that are coming together to have deeper conversations around motherhood, pregnancy, fertility, entrepreneurship, business building, family, and all of the complexities and challenges that go into each of these things and trying to do them in overlapping ways. We will be kicking off the next round of the Mastermind in the spring of 2019. If you are interested in gathering with other women for open, honest, and deep conversations around what our lives actually look like, not hiding parts of them, not pretending that we're not pregnant, not pretending that it's easy, celebrating the great stuff, all of that, then head over to startuppregnant.com slash mastermind. You can get on the wait list for when the next round of applications open. And I have a free email series that walks through how I structure the mastermind, what a mastermind is, how it works, how much it costs, so you can learn more. I'm not going to keep these things from you. I will tell you all about how it works and exactly what we do. And then if it's the right fit for you, sign up and apply and join and make your own masterminds because I so believe that there is power in women gathering together and having honest conversations where we witness each other in our lives and our hopes and in our struggles. 
The link is in the show notes. If you are out walking around listening to this right now and you can't write it down, it's startuppregnant.com slash mastermind. And that will give you all of the information that hopefully you are looking for. Okay, let's get on to today's episode. Everyone, I am so excited to welcome Christine to the show. Christine, hi, how are you? I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So my favorite first question to ask people is to tell me about their morning. What time did you wake up today? Not every morning because parents don't have every morning, (laughs) but what was today like (laughs) for you? Today was awesome because I woke up at 8.19. (laughs) (laughs) My toddler was still sleeping. And so I wasn't rolling out of bed feeling completely hungover without actually being hungover from lack of sleep. And I was able to start my morning with a little bit of quiet and solitude before my nanny got here to start for me to start my work day. And what time does your nanny arrive? Nine. Nine. And then is your nanny taking care of your kid all day? What does that look like? I have her 10 hours a week. I have her from nine to two on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then on Wednesdays and Fridays, my daughter goes to daycare from the time. Whenever she gets up, I let her you know, get up when she wants until 5, 530. Mm, your day sounds divine. I'm like... <laughs> I'm having a little coffee over here because I woke up too early. Um, And then I was telling you before we started the podcast, my kid decided to take a shower with me. So this is parenting. Um, This is parenting. (laughs) And I am completely like giving myself permission to sleep in right now because for so long, it was a a. 5am wake up call. Yeah. How old's your little one? 22 months. 22 months. Almost two at the time of this recording. Yep. So... Let's go back in time. I want to cover a little bit of ground before we get into your um, parenting journey and your business story, because your business story is so new. Where were you in your career path? Like, what does your career path and your business journey look like if you go back five or 10 years? Sure. So what year is it? (laughs) (laughs) 10 years ago, I was still in a nine to five that I really, really disliked. And I had known since getting out of school. Well, really, my whole life, I've known I wanted to be a business owner and an entrepreneur. But I, when I graduated from grad school, I became a professor. And then I became a career counselor and did those things for several years while side hustling as a digital marketer, which is what I really wanted to do full time at the time that I got out of, of school. And so I did those things And there were things that I liked about both of them, but I really disliked the nine to five structure. I really disliked the politics. I really disliked the income cap and knew that I was capable of a lot more. And so that's where I put my spare time was in building this digital marketing agency on the side. And then in 2010, I quit the nine to five world and went full time with my digital marketing agency, ran that full-time for five years. And then in 2015, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit more, had a major life change that caused me to take a look at everything in my life. And out of that, my current business, Life with Passion, was born. Mm-hmm. So you ran your business for about five years, This mm-hmm. the digital marketing consultancy. And 
where, well, let's go into your parenting journey because this is all related. So 2015, tell me, tell me, tell me the story. Yeah. So in early 2015, I was expecting my first baby and we were doing the natural thing and we decided we were going to wait to find out the gender. And it had been a rough pregnancy on me, but a perfect pregnancy for the baby. And I was dealing with things like perinatal depression, which I didn't know was a thing until I couldn't get off the couch. And a lot, a lot, a lot of sickness, physical sickness as well as as mental sickness. And I was dealing with a lot of doubt and fear about what I was going to be like as a parent. I was terrified I wouldn't like it. And I was scared of what it was going to do to my life and who I was, and just very insecure about how I was going to be as a parent at that time, uh, because I wasn't even certain that I that I wanted to have kids. And I think that this is something probably a lot of your listeners can relate to. I, I loved to work. I love my work. I grew up with a stay-at-home mom. And so I was having a really hard time reconciling like what I grew up with and how it would work with what I wanted my life to look like in addition to <laughs> releasing the judgments that I felt like I grew up with around having, you know, what it looked like to be a working mother because it was different than my experience. Uh, and, you know, when you're 10 years old, everything's black and white, right? So anyway, I had experienced three early miscarriages and that was sort of how I found out I could even get pregnant. And so I was really wrestling with this whole thing. And then I got pregnant with my first baby. And so that was what the pregnancy was like. But it had been great in terms of in terms of everything going medically perfectly until our 37 week checkup when I went in and you know at this point it's put your feet up on the couch and wait for the baby to come. We just put the car seat in the car and they put the Doppler on and could not find the baby's heartbeat. And so that moment snowballed into putting me on the ultrasound machine where they made the pronouncement that the baby had passed away and sent us directly to the hospital for everything to be confirmed again and check in to be induced to deliver this baby that had suddenly passed away. Oh my God. If it's okay with you, can you tell us um, what that experience was like? Yeah, sure. I actually like really like talking about her because really these are the only moments that I had with her. You know, I was so anxious in pregnancy that while we kept track of some things, of course, now if I had to do it over again, <laughs> I would write down everything. I would write down, you know, more than the few memories I have about what kind of music she responded to or, or, you know, the fact that she liked hearing my husband read to her because he was very excited and also not sick in the pregnancy. He was very, very excited to become a dad. So the the hospital thankfully had a protocol in this situation. And we had become friends with our midwife. And so, and we also had a doula. And so we were very supported in this shock and numbness and going through the motions and wondering how in the world this happened because we didn't think it did. We felt like we'd never heard of something like this happening and we were kind of young and very healthy. And so 
it was a lot of shock and grief and, you know, what you can imagine, right? They ushered us into a room, a delivery room where they had covered up with just blankets, the pictures, the happy baby mom pictures that are on the walls in every room. And they put us in a, in a corner where it would hopefully be so quiet on the wing that we wouldn't hear other babies crying, you know, and I refused to leave the room the entire time that we were there. I was just thinking this is, I I can't, I can't deal. Like, I don't want to see anyone else. I don't risk seeing anyone else. And, uh, it took a while for them to physically prepare my body to be able to hook up to Pitocin and everything to go into labor because my body wasn't ready. And, um, it was the worst snowstorm in the city's history the night that, that she was born. And so it was trying to get fam- the family members we wanted, trying to figure out how to let them know. And could they drive in and could they even get there in the snow? And once they got there, they had to stay because nobody was digging out. I had to be driven home from the hospital in a friend's four by four truck. We decided to find out the gender while we were waiting for her to be born. And we named her while we were waiting for her to be born. And we, at the encouragement of the nurses, brought a photographer in to capture her birth and the few moments that we had with her and the service that I decided to have in the hospital because I was told, you know, we need to do something, right? But that was planning a 10-minute service in the hospital with these few people who got to actually see her was a little bit less unfathomable than planning a funeral for this baby that two days before we had literally just gathered all our friends and family for, for a baby shower. Mm-hmm. Oh, sweetie. I, um, I'm, I'm sure people listening to my head is spinning with all of these questions. And then I also am not sure which ones to ask. Um, and you, tell me too. I know it's been some time has passed now, so you're able to talk about it a little more. I'm imagining, I'm assuming. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't want to put words in your mouth because that's not, that's not my place. Um, what is, what is labor like? Like how, how, how was that? You know, it's interesting because at that point in my life, I was a people pleaser. Like I had kind of, in a way, lost a fair amount of who I actually was when I was a kid, who was this very precocious leader type who, you know, tried to run the classroom and would get shot down by the female teachers who were triggered by me. And, you know, I pretty quickly learned that I needed to be nice instead of a leader in order to get the positive attention I wanted as an oldest child. And so I. I, of course, was being treated by the patient or treated as a patient. I definitely had my own emotions, felt my own emotions. But I think that also I was managing a lot of other people's emotions, including my husband's who was very outwardly emotional about the whole thing. And my parents, my in-laws, uh, you know, even some of the some of the care team, God bless my midwife she had had her own loss experience and so had never chosen to walk through one of her patient's losses 
until me. And so understandably, she was very emotional, but she was committed to, to showing up for me and walking through this process. And so I think that in a lot of ways, I kind of turtled up. Like I couldn't get on the phone and tell people what had happened. I, I left that to my husband, you know, bless him. And I just kind of went inward in my shock and did what the nurses told me to do and use that extra pain pump like it was my pacifier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really, I couldn't fathom how I was going to do this. And I actually told them, just, I'm not doing this. Like, knock me out and wake me up when it's over. And they said, well, we can do that, but we actually recommend that. And we, because we know that for your grieving process, it's important for you to experience this so that you're going to be able to understand what happened. Hmm. And I went, okay, fine. Right. Like I just have to trust the advice of these people who've been through this before, who've been trained for this. At first, the thought of having someone there to take pictures seemed completely absurd to me. Why would I want to remember this? Now, that's all I have of her. And if my house is burning down after, you know, my living family, like, that's what I'm saving. So it was about 36 hours from the time that I was admitted until my body was ready to deliver. And it was largely, largely, I was numb. And I would say that the physical mm, demands on my body probably had a lot to do with that, looking back, and also just the complete shock, right, of, of trying to process this completely upside down experience that was so the opposite of what I'd spent the last nine months preparing for. How do you, what was she like? And how do you remember her today? I love that question. Um, she looked like me. And uh, my mom was able to see it. You know, she said, gosh, she looks exactly like you. And we didn't get to, of course, see what color her eyes were, or obviously we didn't get to hear her voice. Um, She was tiny and petite and just perfect. They ran every test that I would allow them to run on myself and on her and didn't find anything of note. So we'll never know medically why this happened. Um, and my husband got to spend a lot more time with her than I did for, you know, medical reasons, like I couldn't move and emotional reasons, like I fell asleep because I was so exhausted, etc. Um, but that's what I remember of her is just that she was so beautiful. And that's what I see when I look at the pictures too, is that she looked like me. She's beautiful, you know, tiny and, and perfect. Hmm. What, what happened next? We decided that we just wanted to get home. I think that experience, honestly, you know, we speak on continuing education panels now for people who are who are being trained to deal with 
with any type of pregnancy loss, you know, care providers and hospitals, et cetera. And really we had, we had a wonderful experience as far as these things go and much better than a lot of the friends that we've made and have heard their stories about what they experienced. So I'm really, really grateful for that. And also we just, we just wanted to get home. You know, we didn't have any idea what we were doing. And my husband said, you know what, we could stay here forever and it would still not be enough time with her. So how do we decide what time is enough? At the end of the day, we decided to just, to just go home. I might go back. I would go back and do it differently. I would go back and spend more time with her if I had to do it over again, if I got to do it over again. But we, as I mentioned, we had some friends drive the 45 minutes in the crazy unplowed roads to come get us in their big truck. And they just loaded me from the wheelchair into this truck and dropped me off at our house. And my parents were there and we called the therapist that we had been seeing at the time. And I know you love therapy. So do I. (laughs) I do. I do. (laughs) And she got her husband to drive her to our house, brought us blondie brownies and sat with us for an hour and just gave us a free session. And, you know, I mean, she's a pretty high level, very successful therapist. And for her to do that, you know, so touching. My own therapist, since we're talking about therapy, my personal therapist saw me and refused the check I tried to pay her for in my first session and said, go spend that on something that brings you life. And so I bought this beautiful rose tree that had flowers the same color as Maeve's lips. And that was my kind of something to give us some feeling of life in this snowy, stark uh, experience that we were having. And I also remember that there were these two turtle doves who, oddly enough, had shown up when we lost my husband's like lifelong companion dog. And they had shown up on our back porch and they just hung out there for a while. And I thought, that's really weird. I've never seen these birds before. They're obviously here for, for the dog. They came back when we got home uh, from the hospital after losing Maeve. And they've been with me ever since. So mm-hmm. we, we've moved since. Uh, they regularly dive bomb my car, like poop on my, uh, <laughs> you know, back deck and just, you know, I see them, they sit outside my office window all the time. So like, that's been a very special thing for me. But we, we, we packed up and we followed my parents home to their brand new house. They had moved from Orlando to Nashville and had been in their house one night when I found out that Maeve had died. And so the house is still in box, you know, everything's still in boxes. There's no sheets on the bed, nothing. And I just said, can we come home with you? Because I cannot be alone. And uh, we don't want to be here, you know, with our nursery. Yeah. So we packed up and followed them down and spent the next, well, we had to go to the funeral home first and make those arrangements. And then we went to Nashville for two weeks and just camped out, you know, and cried and laid around and hibernated. And 
waited and tried to figure out how we were going to tell people outside our inner circle and when and figuring all of that out and starting to figure out how to start mm, wrapping our heads around being the parents of a dead baby. It's like an impossible question. Yeah. To even, to like, I can't, I have a blank in my brain because I think I can't, I, it's so hard to get there and be like, what do I think about? Yes. You, you have an, a toddler you mentioned on when we first started this episode. So how do you move from where you are in this profound loss and grief? How does the day-to-day change and and what is the conversation about um, trying again look like? Well, when we were sitting with our midwife before she sent us over to the hospital, for whatever reason, what what this meant for our future family planning came up in that conversation. And I don't remember if we asked or if she said it, but she said, this has no bearing on whether you can try again or whether you're going to have a successful pregnancy. And I was like, really? (laughs) But what they told us is that we needed to wait three months before we could try again, which to be honest, at that point felt like all we freaking wanted was a baby in our arms, you know? And of course, anyone who has gone through a delivery knows what the physical recovery of that was like. And then, you know, having your milk come in and not having a baby to feed and, you know, dealing with PTSD and all of these things. The interesting thing is that when they put her in my arms, I looked at her and I was like, oh, now I want to do this. Now I'm sure I want to do this. And if she was here for me to do this, I could and it would be okay. And so she answered that question for me that I had been wrestling with for years. And so I knew I wanted another baby at that point. So we tried when we were medically, when I was medically cleared to, and I, I, I wasn't ready. And we were using fertility treatments and they weren't working. And I'm sure it's because I wasn't ready. And they also made me crazy. And so a crazier than, you know, a mom who's just gone through this would be anyway. And so after a few months, I looked at my husband, and I said, I'm done. Like, we're, let's go take a big trip. I don't, I don't want to worry about this right now. I need a break from this, uh, from this stuff and from the way it makes me feel. And so we took a break for several months and then I tried a new medication uh, about almost 10 months after she was born and it worked on the first try and I got pregnant with my, actually I was at one of my best friend's weddings. I was her maid of honor. I got to make this beautiful speech about how they were the only, she and her new husband were the only people outside of our immediate family that we had trusted in the immediate wake of losing Maeve. Like we had them over to our house and just sat at dinner and like cried and it was fine. And they were those people for us because they've both been through really hard things And so I was able to give that speech at their wedding. And it was on that trip that I got pregnant with my rainbow baby. I want to ask you a little bit about the the question that you were wrestling with, because I think that it's one a lot of people ask, do I want to become a parent? Do I not want to become a parent? How will it change me? Some people have a clear, I want to be a I want to be a mom or I want to be a dad or I want to be a parent. 
But for so many people, that's not true. What was that like for you? And how how did it come about that you finally ended up saying, yes, we're going to do this thing? Well, with Maeve, do you mean? Or- yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm going backwards a little bit because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just curious about the journey. Cause I know that once Maeve arrived and you saw her, mm-hmm. you, you said, oh yeah, this is a thing that I'm doing. Um, but what was the before like of, of wrestling with the decision and, and figuring out what was right for you and your partner? Yeah. Well, my husband and I had a rocky first few years of marriage. And so at that point, it wasn't even really on the table for discussion. It definitely didn't feel comfortable to me at that point to be having that conversation. But when we got to a place that was stronger in our relationship, we started having the conversation and he was 100% yes. And I was like, but wait, I'm still kind of like back. Like, yes, we're much happier and our relationship is much stronger now, but like, I'm really conflicted about this. You're the dude. Like, you know, you, in our conversations back then, you go off to work, right? I have my work that I really love. And I also, I think being an older parent, I was pretty acutely aware of what, I was much more aware of how my life and our lives were going to change than I would say that he was at that point. And if he were here, he would 100% agree with me. <laughs> so the miscarriages were how I found out I could even get pregnant. And that felt really conflicting to me because obviously there was the grief of going through those and, oh my gosh, my body's betrayed me, but do I want this or not? Right. And what am I going to do about it? And what do I need to do about it? And is this the thing I want to do? When I got pregnant with Maeve, it was not on purpose. (laughs) It was not the result of fertility treatments. And so that kind of added to the conflict over it because it didn't feel like something that I had chose. I kind of like to be in control and I wasn't, right? I wasn't in control of the choice. I wasn't in control of my body. I wasn't in control. I didn't feel at home there, you know? And because it wasn't planned, I think that made it even more complex for me and why I really, really wrestled with it the entire pregnancy. I'm so glad that you're sharing so many of these different things because I think these experiences are not... um, mentioned as often the, the the grappling with whether or not to have a kid the um the the depression you know oh, the shock oh. waves that even just being pregnant can send through your body and and your psyche as you think about all that's coming and then now i'm skipping forward because i also want to make sure we have time to talk about what what came out of this experience 10 months after you lost Maeve you got pregnant again at this bachelorette or the bachelorette party or a wedding? wedding. You're giving the speech wedding, wedding at a mm-hmm. wedding. And uh, what was that like? Terrifying. I mean, yeah, terrifying and isolating and anxiety producing and all of the things that you could imagine that it would be. I pretty much hid out for those nine months. We had just the month before moved into our dream house, you know, after losing Maeve, we were just kind of like, screw it. We're doing these things we've been talking about for a while. We took a trip to Europe, uh, sold our house that no longer fit us, uh, and moved and bought this house that, that we're in now that we love. And, 
And so being in a new city also, I was able to hide out, <laughs> you know, and, and really cocoon myself and, and do what was comfortable for me, which was work and do my best to manage my anxiety and my physical symptoms. I would be on calls with clients and be muting while they were talking to like throw up because I was so sick, but also really grateful that I had the work to focus on because I love it and did not tell people until very late in the pregnancy, wore baggy shirts, put on my RBF uh, whenever I would go out in public, wore sunglasses in the grocery store, joked with my husband that I was going to have him buy me a big t-shirt with a big no sign on it. But apparently like the constant scowl that I had on my face out in public was enough to scare people off because nobody ever asked me about my pregnancy <laughs> or told me everything was going to be fine, which is really what I was scared of, that I would just lose it, you know, and be very angry if somebody tried to give me words of advice or comfort about my pregnancy because people had said the stupidest things to me after I lost Maeve. And I was just like unavailable for anybody <laughs> to talk to me who I didn't want to talk to. So oh, that, I mean, no. I, yeah, people say the dumbest things. They do. They do. And, and you know, kind of to your point about not even being able to wrap your mind around what that experience must have been like or what it must feel like. I also get it because yeah. a lot of parents don't want to imagine it because it is unfathomable to think about losing your child, right? So instead, where they're comfortable going is saying something idiotic, like, well, there must have been a reason or God needed her more than we did or some crazy She's in a better place. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, she's fine. I'm not worried about her. I'm the one who's destroyed, right? So yeah. anyway, you know, having had those experiences in the previous year, I just completely protected myself and stayed with my care team even though it meant driving an hour for every appointment and really, really advocated for myself and for an early delivery and for all of the things, extra appointments, all of the things that I needed to help me to, to manage this experience that I was having. Absolutely. And, and to be fair, I, also, listeners, I say dumb things. Like it's not, people say dumb we things and do. we all do it. <laughs> you know, so I have said the dumbest things to my friends and later on been like, oh, like why, why? And it's, I generally, if people say something that's better than radio silence, so don't be afraid of saying something stupid. It is okay. Um, or sometimes you just put a big nag up there and you're like, don't talk to me. Don't even. I agree <laughs> with you though. It's saying something and being in any way present is better than radio silence because we were very surprised by the people who completely dropped off the face of the earth yeah. and by the ones who showed up. It was not who we would have expected. People get so uncomfortable. It yeah. is such a scary place to to be and yeah. that discomfort terrifies people. And and that's yeah. I think that's why people say such stupid things including myself uh, because we're trying to speed quickly to the point of it being better. We're like, "Oh, well, it's, yeah. it, it, here's how it gets better." And you're like, "No." head. Uh, yeah. It sucks. It really sucks right now. <laughs> like, you like, I am grieving. something to make it better, which is why you're struggling to find the right words because there are none. Right. And so like, and I totally said the most inane, stupid things before going through this experience myself. And I right. completely own that. And I'm sure I say things 
about other experiences that I don't get now, but this is the one where I'm like, oh, I've been through that. And I would love to help people understand how to better support people going through this type of loss because pregnancy loss is pretty common, but it's not talked about that much. Yeah, it is. It is a hundred percent. And for people listening, if you know people going through something hard, um, you can just own the awkwardness of saying like, I don't know what to say at a time like this, or I'm sure that I'm going to put my foot in my mouth, but I have to let you know that I'm sure this sucks. And, and I wanted to say hi, I'm I'm here. here. I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. What would you like? What, what do you think? I just totally injected my own opinion. So what do you think? No, I completely agree with you. Um, I think one of the big things for this type of loss is that any, any parent who's lost a child, really anyone who's lost someone is that they deeply care about is scared that their memory is going to be forgotten. Right. And I think a lot of us hold a torch for those we've lost to kind of keep their memory and their legacy alive. Well, the difference with this type of loss is that there are no memories, you know, yeah, there are a few pictures, uh, like two sonograms. And so it's, it feels very like, how do I make sure that people know that she was a person and that, you know, and, and that she existed. And I think that because it's so uncomfortable, a lot of times people avoid talking about it to you, but I love talking about her because I do get to keep her memory alive. And she was real, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that that's one of the biggest things that you can do if you know somebody who's gone through this is to speak their child's name. If they gave their child a name to ask them how they're doing about doing with it. Uh, And just to, just to be there, honestly, that's, that's it. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if you say the right thing or the wrong thing. The fact that you're being available for their grief uh, and for what they're processing is is the most important thing that you can do if you can handle it. You know, I mean, if you need to just send a card and like not have a conversation, that counts. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but I think that that's the important piece there. Mm, I love that. That's such a good reminder and. And just awareness thing for people who maybe haven't experienced this before. So you have another kiddo and you have a brand new business. I do. Well, the I business has now been around for a while. And a baby baby. <laughs> yeah. So two new, two more babies. They're both toddlers now, right? Yes. Effectively. <laughs> well, the, the business is a three-nager, I'd say. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, tell me how the business tell me how the business was born and and what it is that you're you're doing today with this business. Sure. So in the wake of losing Maeve, I really gave myself permission to explore what my next level was because I had known with the digital marketing, it was very comfortable. I was booked out. I liked my work. I loved my clients, but I had known that there was another level for me and I didn't have clarity on what that was. And also didn't have a big urge to get that uncomfortable to figure it out. Well, when Maeve died, I was like, screw it. Uh, the worst thing that's ever happened to me has already happened to me. I'm not scared of anything anymore. Let's do this. So I continued asking myself, what, what is it? What is it? What am I supposed to be doing? What's my next level? What's that thing that's going to tie 
my passions, my talents, my zone of genius together. What even is my freaking zone of genius? And I decided out of that process to hire my own first mentor and figure it out. And so what I realized as a result of working with her was that the thing that I was always doing was working to empower other people to become entrepreneurs. Like I was always trying to convince people who had no interest in it to do it just because they were in my circle. Right. So I want my husband to figure out a way to monetize his hobby of doing endurance sports. And I wanted my parents to monetize this and monetize that. My sisters, my friends, they were like, we don't care. Like we're happy going to our jobs. And so when I really looked at what my journey was like starting out, I had spent several years in a job that I really knew I wasn't meant for. And I also felt very, very stuck because I didn't have the plan. I didn't have the plan. I didn't have the, you know, the support and the clarity to just go out and quit my job and do it. Even though when I finally quit my job, I replaced my income in the first month. Like it wasn't a thing, you know, it was obviously what I was meant to be doing. So I realized that my, my mission and the legacy I wanted to create for Maeve, since she wasn't here to do it, because to me, that was the only way I could parent her, you know, is to create a legacy for her was to do this thing that would help other people, you know, at the risk of sounding cheesy, like own their own strengths and passions and actually fulfill the dreams that they had for themselves. Because I'd always been the kind of person, apart from figuring out how to quit my job, that if I wanted something, I just was like, all right, I'm just going to go do it. Like I wanted a horse. I went and got a horse. I wanted four horses. I went and got four horses, like on a teacher's salary, whatever. I was just like, I can do this. It's fine. You know? And I think that's just one of those weird things about me that's been true since I was a kid. Well, the one place where I really got stuck was figuring out how to start my own business, quit my job, replace my income. So I decided that I was going to figure out how I had done that and also help other people own really the build their own confidence, figure out what they could do and help them with the strategy as well as the mindset of, of doing it for themselves because I've been doing it for a long time and, and life with passion uh, is my fourth company. So that's what I did. That's what I did. That was terrifying. I'd never had a personal brand. I'd always been behind the scenes. I'd always booked out on referrals. And now here I was this person with a personal brand doing live streams and taking photo shoots and doing all this stuff. It was extremely uncomfortable. But what I actually found in the process was that I rediscovered who I'd been as that like five-year-old kid getting shamed for being bossy. And who had wanted to be famous and a performer, but who didn't have the whatever to be Hollywood actor or a Broadway star. And this was my vehicle and also a vehicle for so much good and so much change. And so in that process, I I found my life's work. I have so many questions now about this because first you took this life event and said, basically screw it. I want to do what I want to do. And started started a whole new company. But then also, what you're saying now about moving into kind of front and center stage, and owning that you loved building businesses, and you love this entrepreneurial side. Can you talk more about what it was like to move front and center and to move into the owner seat and the founder seat and to build this business rather than what feels maybe more like freelancer behind the scenes before? Yeah, it was and still is uncomfortable at times uh, as as my business continues to grow. And but the, I think the thing that has been the biggest lesson for me is to continually check in with myself about what feels fun and do that because I think for a long time I was 
all about, well, it should look this way and it should, you know, check these boxes and da 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 And that wasn't fun. You know, it was, it was the, the hustle mentality that frankly, I really had to wrestle with in order to shift when I had a living baby to parent and I mm-hmm. have 25 hours a week of childcare in which to run my business. And so, and when she was first born, I had none and then I had 10 hours, you know? So like, it's been an evolution, both in giving myself permission to show up the way that I want and to learn to do things like delegate more and trust more because I do like things done well. And I do like things done a certain way. And Hey, I could train someone to do that. And I can trust them with that if they're the right fit. What? So like all these little things that anybody who has a business in any sort of team is going to be like, yep, duh. But for me, it was a huge, huge step forward in terms of, like you said, actually becoming a business owner, a founder, a CEO, and owning and giving myself permission that there are a million different ways to build a business. I get to do it in the way that feels fun for me. I get to focus on the two or three things that I really, really love doing. And that's enough to build this business as big as I want to build it. And give us a sense of the business. What is it? What do you do? I know you help other entrepreneurs and you've recently written this book, but tell us like, and what is the structure of the business? How does it work? Yeah. Yeah. So at the time of this recording, I have just released a a best-selling, now best-selling, yay, uh, book that really captures the the work that I've been doing, which has primarily been one-on-one with clients over the past few years. So that's been the primary structure of the business is working with clients who are either in jobs that they want to transition out of by building something on the side and replacing their income, or they've already quit and their business isn't working the way that they want it to, and they're afraid they're going to have to go back. So they want to get help building the business that they love or maybe pivoting to something that they love more than what they're doing now and get kind of like long-term support to help them do that. So I kind of say it's like having a business partner without actually having to have a business partner, the headaches that can go along with that. And that's my goal is to really be a high-level mentor for these people who are looking for the shortcuts right? Looking for the shortcuts, looking for the support and accountability. Cause I think a lot of times we, there's this great quote that I love. I heard it from my friend, Adrian Dorison, but she said, we're in our own jar and we can't read the label. And so I love being that person for people. And I think also the confidence and self-doubt piece is so huge because we're not taught typically to be entrepreneurs in our schooling and in our life experiences, we're taught to be good employees. And It is a learned skill for most of us. Most of us are not straight out going, oh, I know exactly how to be an entrepreneur and have that personality. Most of us learn along the way. But I think it's a fallacy, especially among like people who are used to just being good at things. When you try to start a business, you're like, what the heck do I do? Right. And so that's really my passion is to help people figure out like what kind of business works for them and their life and what kind of strategies work for them and their life and their personality draws on my teacher counselor background and training. And Also, I love, I love, love, love the visibility piece. It's one of my favorite parts. I'm right now I'm in the middle of recording my audio book and it's like one of the most fun projects I've ever done because I'm performing. Yeah. (laughs) And so I plan to, and maybe even at the time that this, that this episode airs, I will be 
launching my speaking career. Right now I'm looking for a speaker's agent and just planning to take the message wide and, and scale the business in that way because it is so freaking much fun for me. So you did client work for a couple of years. And then from there, you started writing this book. And the book, at the time of this recording, because we know this interview is going to come out about six months later, it launched really well. The book did amazing. It became a number one bestseller in several categories. Tell me the title of the book. Uh, The Income Income Replacement Formula. Yep. Seven Simple Steps to Doing What You Love and Making Six Figures from Anywhere. That's so cool. I was reading through part of it today. The seven steps. It's interesting. Like as a personality, I don't always love going to things that are seven steps. And then when I was mm-hmm. reading your book, I, I was like, oh, I like these steps. Can you can you talk about what they are and and give us a, kind of a sneak peek into the book? Absolutely. And you know, it's so <laughs> funny that you say that because if you would have seen the first manuscript I delivered to my editor, it was a complete hot mess. And she has a strong background in online marketing. And so she's, as well as being an editor. So she said to me, you need a system. And I was like, I don't have a system. And she said, yeah, you do. That's why all your clients are quitting their jobs. You're obviously doing something with all of them as varied as they are. And I said, well, you're going to have to figure it out and extrapolate it from the book because I don't know what to tell you. And so it's a great marketing title. (laughs) Uh, Let me just clear, like be clear that just because my brain, it gets a little, um, what is it? Ornery? <laughs> when I see that, I'm just, like as a marketer, I know how well it works. And then um, as a person, I'm like, Ugh. but I, re- I was reading your book and I was like, I really like these seven steps because they're not, they're not um, typical. And the system is awesome. So wait, now keep going. Oh Tell me gosh. about it. Thank you. Thank you. But I totally get it. <laughs> so, so the, the goal here is to help you just really simplify it, right? Seven simple steps. So step one is decision. You got to stop asking yourself if you're going to do this, if you really want it, if you should, and you just have to make a decision and like get rid of all of that energy that you're putting toward waffling, right? This is something you want to do. It, it really is as simple as making a decision first so that you can open up your brain to think about, okay, well then what's next? What do I actually do to bring it about? Step two is actually a significant portion of the book. It's mindset. And I think that this is one of the things that if we're going to talk about my system, like actually features much more heavily in my, my work than the way that a lot of, a lot of people work or share. Because what I found is that specifically in this population, you know, of high achievers, that's the biggest thing. We do not have a problem executing. Like action is our default, right? If someone would just tell us what to do, we go do it already. But where we get stuck is in overthinking and getting overwhelmed and doubting ourselves because as capable as everyone else thinks we are, we, I think as a population, suffer from more self-doubt than most. And so I think that, isn't it weird? I think there's a correlation between between that and the level of self-doubt, like a positive correlation between people who identify as high achievers. And, and I never realized it until I started working with a bunch of them and hearing from a bunch of them. The interesting thing for me is that actually, as I expand and as I get bigger, the self-doubt also gets louder and bigger. And it's mm. it's not something that goes away. It's something I have to get mm-hmm. better and better and better at dealing with. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Yes, right? It's, it might still be the same stories. They might crop up in different ways so you don't recognize them at first. But learning the tools to manage them so that they don't, so that it doesn't stop you. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a learnable skill, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. It's not just the Gary V's of the world who are like, I'm buying the jets and I'm going to crush it, right? Like, 
<laughs> and I've always been that way, right? Yeah. No, like, yes. I mean, yes, Gary, like go Gary. But also some of us need to develop that skill set in order to become, you know, as successful as we want to be and, and to deal with that self-doubt at every level, right? Right, right. Okay, so first is deciding. Second yep. is dealing with the mindset. Yeah. What's number three? To think like an entrepreneur. Number three is niching. So mm. that's something that I see a lot of new entrepreneurs struggling with because they feel like their thing can help everyone and they don't want to leave anyone out. Uh, and I've totally felt that way myself. But the more niche you can get, the clearer people are on whether at least what you offer in the beginning is for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also gives you the ability. I've been very surprised by the people who come to me who don't fit maybe the description that I have on my wall, but who really resonate with the pieces of my story that I decide to share over and over or the weird things about my personality that, that I decide to share over and over. We always seem to find each other. But if I didn't share those things and I wasn't clear on my niche, it would feel very confusing, right? The message would feel very confusing and it would be unlikely that I would be having a success that I'm having. So I, I think that's a super important piece that a lot of people miss out on because out of that come the following four steps. If you're not clear on that, the rest of them are not going to feel easy or clear to you either. Yes. Oh, yes. I For the longest time, I ran myself under the Sarah K. Peck brand, and I, I just wanted to talk to everybody. You know, I talk about psychology and this and that. And when I started Startup Pregnant, which is very specific, mothers, entrepreneurs, <laughs> founders, right? There's still a tremendous number of them out there. I, we yes. haven't stopped having conversations. The way applications to work with me changed. Instead of getting 200 applications with like a hundred of them being semi-qualified and then going down to 40 and then picking through them and having to interview a bunch of people and then getting to 20, I get nine perfect applications. Mm, I love it. You're doing I get zero so- noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And they're like, here's, here's my money, right? You're my Ex- person. Yes. Exactly. And they know exactly. And they're like, this is worth it. I want it. They're perfect. That I feel like they're smarter than me. It makes me nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I'm just like, what? Like, what? And, but that's the self-doubt creeping in again. And it's amazing. It's so amazing. Okay. So number three is niche. Number four. Yep. Number four is offer. So now that you know who you're, you're serving, it's time to create something that they want, right? Because now you know who you're serving, you can figure out what they want. And in my opinion, the the fastest way to replace your income and then start to scale your business from there, if you want, is to create premium price services and serve a small number of people really well and continue to learn, hone your craft, validate your ideas, validate your messaging while you're making money, while you're replacing your income, while you're building your following, all of those things, as opposed to what I see a lot, which is, you know, somebody going and spending a bunch of money to create a huge funnel and $7 tripwire for like a $97 program, and they have 100 people on their list, right? How are you like, it's like scaling a business that's not even there yet, right? Yes. (laughs) It's not even a business yet. So but but we hear so much noise about how you have to be a, have a funnel and how you have to have a this and passive income and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. Create a course, create a course, create a course. Yeah, create a course. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there's a time and a place for all of that for some people. But if you yeah. want to replace your income, 
in limited time on the side of your job, or you're out and you're freaking out and you're spinning your wheels, like, let's make some real money around here by serving a small number of people. I love that. And this is something Natalie Lussier has also taught me, which is the Mm. value of working one-on-one with clients is so high. And it's once you once you have said the same thing 40 times to 40 different clients, then you know what your course is, or your book. Yep. Or your exactly. (laughs) I'm tired of saying this, I need to just send you a link, or I need to just send you a $9 book. And but it's it's after it's not before. Mm, Love it. Okay. So four is the offer five, five is marketing. So now, whether or not you know anything about the online world, right? Because you know, people wanting to start their own businesses range from like millennials who realize this nine to five world is really disillusioning for them to people starting their second chapters, looking at retirement age, right? And everyone in between. Uh, and so I believe that marketing can be very, very simple. And I also believe that there's so much hype, like we were just talking about, about how you have to have the right, how you have to have the new hot platform or how you have to have this number of followers or how you have to have a list or how you have to have a hot, you know, landing page or whatever. And I believe that none of that is true in the beginning of your business. And I teach people to sell their stuff even before they spend the time on a website because so often a website is a time suck that never feels good enough for you because of your self-doubt when you're starting a business. And so you're not making any money. You spend six months dinking around on a website, you know, <laughs> as opposed yes. to creating real relationships with people on a platform that feels best for you, getting rid of FOMO and selling your stuff. Yes. Yes. It's so true. Like how many different themes have you tried on your Squarespace or your WordPress website and why hasn't anything changed when you know what a website is? It can be a Google Doc. Like you can yeah. literally have a Google Doc and say, this is what I offer and this is how you contact me. A Google Doc and an email address. You don't even need hosting anywhere. A hundred percent. Nobody even looks at my website before they buy something from me, <laughs> to be frank. Like, and everything's out there for them if they want. And they're yeah. going to, you know, we'll chat or they'll send me an email. And what do you offer? What does it cost? I'm like, yeah, yeah, good. Great. Mm. Great to know. That's validated. You do not need a website. Love, love it. Okay, so we could do a whole separate show on marketing, which we may have to like have you back and do. But number six. Yeah, number six is visibility. So building on the marketing piece is really getting consistent with that visibility so that you can start to establish no like and trust. Because I think that what happens so often is people put one post out there and they've read all these posts about how one post made me $10,000. So they put their post out there and their thing doesn't immediately sell out. And they're like, well, I must be a failure. My thing must be terrible going back to mindset. And then they hide out, right? So visibility is about believing that from the time you start putting stuff out there, people are watching to see if you're going to keep showing up. And if you're someone they know, they can know, like, and trust and then buy from, right? If you're a person that that person wants to spend their money with because you've been around, because you're consistent, because you're taking your business seriously, because you know your stuff, because you're providing that quote unquote value, that elusive thing that everyone talks about, right? And get visible in a way that feels good for you, right? Not because someone said Facebook Live is a hot thing. Get visible where your people are and just keep doing that thing and bringing in the belief again that that's enough. That's what. I mean, when I say visibility, mm-hmm. I think that's so it's as much about consistency as it is about actually doing the thing to get in front of people. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yes. Consistency and persistency, right? Like those are the two (laughs) things you need to be a successful entrepreneur. I was taking the marketing course with Seth Godin and he said, he was like, don't change your messaging when you get bored of it. Don't change it when your graphic (laughs) designer gets bored of it. Don't change it even when your clients get bored of it. Change it when your accountant gets bored of it. And and it, I feel the same way about blogging or about like producing. It's like, keep going. People are, people are listening and they're there with you and they're not as far as you are in the material or the content. So just keep on showing up. It's so true. It's like, if you are not blue in the face from talking about it yet, <laughs> you have not even begun to talk about it enough. Yeah. Exactly. I always, when I send emails, I always feel, I always get that twinge of like, oh, I'm sending too many emails. Like, this is too much. I wouldn't. And then um, my favorite joke is the toilet analogy of like, oh, somebody's on their phone on the toilet and they're reading this. And then they accidentally deleted it and they go back. By the time they get back to their computer, they've forgotten and they definitely need another <laughs> reminder. Because <laughs> yeah. that happens to me so all the good. time. <laughs> right? If you have yeah. a hot minute in the bathroom by yourself, but then you hit the wrong <laughs> totally, button. <laughs> totally. My my toddler is currently at the age where he's like, mama needs privacy. And then he closes himself in the bathroom with me. And I'm like, we got to work on this concept, buddy. You're supposed to be on the other side. Right. Privacy with you. Privacy. Thing. <laughs> um, okay. So number seven. Number seven is sales. Mm. And so this is, you know, something that strikes fear into the heart of uh, most new entrepreneurs. And a lot of struggling entrepreneurs, right? Because because I think what we picture when we picture sales is the used car salesman. And the phrase that I like instead is creating trust-based transactions. So building real relationships with people because you are real. And because assuming you're a nice person, which I'm sure you are if you're listening, like being nice and being consistent and providing value and being a person works. And so I love, you know, talking about sales in a no pressure, non-icky, non-salesy way, because it is possible to sell in that way. And it is possible to do it without a 5 million email funnel that hounds people, right? I mean, there's a difference between reminding them when they get back to the computer and like blowing up their inbox, right? (laughs) Right. So there's a difference between four emails and 34. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's about connection and about truly creating relationships, right? Whether you're doing that, of course, you know, I recommend at the beginning of your business, you do that Uh, one-on-one. But even as you scale, how do you replicate that feeling of connection and of it being an actual like relationship, no matter what the platform, that you're being real, that you're being authentic, that you're being genuine. That's what we're all looking for when we look to buy from someone. And so of course, that's what your people are going to be looking for when they buy from you. I love this. Where can people find your book? On Amazon. You can find the ebook. You can find the paperback or the Audible version. Or if you want to read more about it, you can go to the incomereplacementformula.com. Mm, I love it. And what is next for you over the next six to 12 months? What are you working on in your business and in your life? So a big thing for me is launching my speaking career. Uh, as we chatted about, I'm really really excited about that and feeling like that's the next big direction for my business, as well as, you know, serving some, some larger groups of people. I am considering 
adding a second uh, living child. I'm uh, not really sure how to say that, right? Because it's not my second child. It's my third child. But you get what I'm saying, having listened yeah. to this interview, considering adding another baby to my family. So really having those conversations in my head right now. Because uh, again, my husband's like, when are we doing this? Let's let's go. It's, it's happening. So <laughs> so that's the, the space that I am in personally to be completely transparent, but really just continuing to focus on finding ways to make this business something that feels like a complete joy every day, right? Where my default as I go to each level is my brain's like, oh, how do we make this hard? How do we make it feel like work, right? Because it's an old story for me. So embracing things like I'm going to go take a day and have one of my best friends who's an audio engineer, engineer the heck out of my audiobook, And we're not going to check emails and we're going to dance in the studio and we're going to be ridiculous and it's going to be awesome. You know, those types of things that are also business building. Those are the things that I'm looking for. And I know that speaking is one of those. And I know that uh, traveling more and connecting and looking to be part of retreats and in-person events is something that I've been getting a ton of energy from lately. I think I'm finally recovering from the hiding out of the pregnancy and then the kind of being tied down of breastfeeding and up all night every night and yes. you know not getting out of uh, completely undesirable clothing, you know, all of those things that we get. Yeah. This, it's, it's feeling like a really exciting phase to do to do more of that in-person visibility stuff. So I'd say that's where I'm going. It's so fun to see how the pregnancy and the parenting cycles intersect with the business cycles, because I remember there was such a huge surge when my kiddo turned either 12 months or 18 months, and we weren't pregnant for our second kid. And I was like, let's go. I'm going to be out <laughs> everywhere. Like I'm yeah. going to all the conferences. I'm leading retreats. I'm doing like, cause there's this window yes. because I knew that if I got pregnant again, I would feel I would be vomiting. I'd want to be home and then breastfeeding, like traveling and breastfeeding. If that's something you do, bravo oh. for me. I'm just like, I feel tethered to an electrical outlet slash like a mama cow. And yep. <laughs> it's just, it's less fun to go to conferences like that. So yeah, way less fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. I traveled to Germany and like was pumping while I was there. And I could not translate uh, freezer correctly. And I kept looking it up. I said, cool shrunk, cool shrunk. And they, <laughs> the guy behind the desk was so mortified because I was handing him bags because I didn't have a fridge in my room. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a different story. Uh, Christine, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. Where else can people find you on the internet, your website, your socials, all of that? Thank you so much. Yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, my website's lifewithpassion.com. You can find me on Instagram or on Facebook at LifeWPassion. Amazing. Thank you. And you know, I always say this and I mean it. Leave us a review on iTunes if you like our show. It takes a few seconds and it really does help us a lot. If you want more of what we're talking about, go over to startuppregnant.com and get on our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter with time-saving tips for parents and entrepreneurs. And I always include a weekly gadget or tool or something awesome that we've stumbled upon to help make your life just a little bit easier. And as always, you can reach out to us at hello at startuppregnant.com. We love hearing from you.